Our Lord and God, you are holy, righteous, and true. We have sinned in Adam. We have personally sinned and offended you and violated your law. We were lost without a will, desire to come to you. But you came to us. You sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could not live. To die the death that we deserved. And who rose from the dead. Ascending to the right hand of the father. And in his resurrection, showing showing that his sacrifice was accepted by the father. We sit this morning in awe and in our hearts we stand in awe of your wondrous mercy and grace. As your word goes forth this morning, we pray that you would give us listening ears, understanding minds and believing hearts, feet that are quick to obey. Holy Spirit, we pray that you do this work in our lives this morning. And I do decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you alone can become more. Be glorified for the glory of God, the sake of Christ, and for the good of your people. Amen. Good morning. Thank you again for joining us on this Lord's Day. And I would like to personally thank, on behalf of the church, RBC, thank Pastor Zay and thank Pastor John for their faithful preaching Over the past two and a half months as they've been going through the book of Malachi and through the book of Habakkuk, thank you, brothers, for your faithful teaching. Thank you for your fine preaching. This church is blessed to have elders like you. We are blessed. We will begin a new series next Sunday through the book of Genesis, next Lord's Day Sabbath. But today we will deal with a specific text in the book of Romans that I pray will be of some encouragement to your souls. And before we begin, might I say something to you as as our brother Arnold has said already this morning, and that is today is not the isolated day. I'll slow myself down. Today is not the isolated day where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Today is not uniquely and only Resurrection Sunday. The Lord's Day Sabbath is no different than this Lord's Day Sabbath is no different than last week's Lord's Day Sabbath. You may be shocked. Some of you may be shocked at me saying that. But is not every Sunday the Lord's Day? Indeed, it is. Each Sunday that we gather, we celebrate the incarnation the perfect life of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial death, the wondrous resurrection and glorious ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ each and every Sunday that we gather for worship. Amen. So this day, this calendar day, think not that this calendar day is any more unique than next week's calendar Sunday. Amen. With that said, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. This is the word of God. Please give it your full attention. What shall we 
say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. You may please be seated. And as you are seated this morning. I would like to ask you what I believe is a pressing question. And here's the question. Think deeply. How do you know that you have been sovereignly, graciously brought by the grace of God from death to life? Or how do you know that you were saved? How do you know? What evidence do you have that gives you assurance that you are no longer dead in your sin and trespasses? How do you know that you are saved? Where? What is your assurance? Are you thinking about it? Do you have your answer? Paul's letter to the Romans, then. Paul's letter to the Romans is not intended to be a theological treatise. Paul's letter to the Romans is not intended to be a systematic theology, if you will. Rather, Paul's letter to the Romans is a pastoral letter to new believers who are also needy believers. Now, of course, there are there are timeless truths, timeless theological truths embedded in the letter to the Romans. That is undeniable. But it is this letter in this letter to the Romans. Paul is 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 writing to a little outpost of faith. A small ecclesia, a small church, if you will, living within the very heart of the Roman Empire. This small church was surrounded by the sin of the Roman Empire and daily faced opposition to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul asked the question in Romans 834, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, 
who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed or who indeed is interceding for us. One of the principles of good teaching is repetition, repetition, repetition. It is one of the fundamental features of good teaching. And yet the problem with repetition is this, that repetition can often become dull if you hear the same thing over and over again. So the trick is to to become repetitive or, or not become repetitive in the sense that you are saying the same thing every single time. But to be repetitive by saying the same thing in different ways. Does that make sense? That's the trick of good teaching. Saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in his letter to the Romans. And by way, and by the way, also in many of his other letters, the Apostle is cultivating the, the art of repetition without boring his hearers of that day or his readers of this day. Amen. And he's doing that in verse 34. Look there. In verse 34, Paul wants his hearers to be grounded in the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 34, who was to condemn? But what did he say in verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What is he doing? He's saying the same thing in a completely different way. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Both of these words are, are judicial words. They remind us of the court of law. The apostle Paul is in a sense repeating himself. Why? He is seeking to hammer God's truths into the hearts and minds of God's people. Paul wants these people to know. And Paul wants you today to know that there is nothing and no one to fear. That the believer's life, listen to this, is unassailable. The believer's life is invulnerable. The believer's life is secure. How? Your life is invulnerable. Your life is secure. How is it that the Christian life is unassailable? How is it that your life is secure? Because the Christian's life, the believer's life, is in Jesus Christ. Because the Christian's life, the believer's life, is in Christ Jesus. Look again at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is writing as a pastor. He knows the unpredictability of the Christian life all too well. Paul has spoken emphatically in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And perhaps the Apostle Paul is anticipating someone's response of saying, Ah, yes, you say I am, insecure, I am secure, but what about on the last day? Will I be secure even then on the last day? 
And isn't that just like believers? You think that you have plugged all of the leaks in regards to our assurance and security in Christ. And all of a sudden, another leak begins to spring out. And Paul never forgets in his writings, as he is led by the Holy Spirit, that he is a pastor. That he is writing as a pastor. He is writing to ordinary Christians with ordinary believers in mind he is writing. And he answers the objection that he anticipates and highlights a great truth that is often overlooked and listened and often underappreciated. And that is this, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. We know that. More than that, the one who was raised. We're okay with that. And who was at the right hand of God. I think we understand that as well. But listen to the last part. Who indeed is interceding for us. I would like you to follow Paul's glorious logic, if you will. Who can possibly condemn the Christian? Who can possibly condemn the believer when it is Christ Jesus who died? Who can condemn you when it is Christ who died? For Paul, the death of Christ is always a sin-bearing death. It is always a substitutionary death. It is a wrath-absorbing death. And the apostle is saying, who can condemn you? Who can condemn you when Jesus Christ, our Lord, has died? Bearing the condemnation, that was yours. Who can condemn you? There is nothing and no one left to condemn you. Why? Because all of the condemnation that was yours has been heaped upon Christ. Who can condemn you? He died. The just for the unjust to bring you to God. Listen, not to make your salvation probable. But to make your salvation effectual. To effect your salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die to make your salvation possible. He died to secure your salvation and the salvation of every single believer of every age. His death was a sin bearing wrath, exhausting death for each and every person who belongs to him. He did not die for sin in the lump, as the Puritans would say. But every single particular sin Christ died for. Christ has died for the transgressions of his people. And that is why the Apostle Paul begins the chapter in chapter 8 like this. There is therefore now. What? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the one who died. Christ is the one who died. Faith takes us into Christ, the Christ who died. But then Paul goes on, verse 34, more than that, who was raised? The Lord Jesus Christ was raised by his father in public and divine vindication for his finished work of atonement. God has displayed to the universe that he has accepted Gladly accepted the perfect work of his son's perfect obedience. How? The father has shown his acceptance of the son's perfect work by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. 
Amen. Brothers and sisters, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? The father has accepted the sin bearing wrath, exhausting death of his son. And that's not the end. As if that were enough and it's still not. uh, He's still not done. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ presently at this moment? He is at the place of highest honor. He is at the place of supreme authority. He is at the place of divine power. And he is there as our covenant head, the covenant federal head of his people. Amen. He is the head. We are his body. He is head over all things for the church. He is there at the right hand of a power and authority of the father in place of preeminence, in place of power. And look what the verse says. Verse 34, who indeed is interceding for us. As if being at the right hand of God was not enough. He is also still not done. He is there interceding for us. Wow. For us. For you and for me. And it is this last statement that I would like to consider with you in more detail this morning. Do you ever wonder? You ever look into the heavens or lay on your bed or at night when there is a clear sky? Look into the heavens and wonder, what is God doing right now? You ever lay in your bed or look into the sky and say, I wonder what Jesus Christ has been doing for the past 2017 years. We know that he is upholding and sustaining the universe. We know that we know that he is forwarding his purposes according to the counsel of his will and for his glory, according to our catechism chapter or question 10. But what else is he doing? What else is he doing? Is he simply laying on a divine bed of ease? Having someone fan him. Feeding him grapes one by one. Waiting for the moment that he will return in glory. What is the Lord Jesus Christ doing now? Is our Lord passive at this moment? The apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says no. At this present moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding, praying for us. The writer to the Hebrews, whom we believe is Paul, tells us in Hebrews uh, 7.25 that he ever lives. That he ever lives to make intercession for us. In a sense, he is saying the whole purpose and point of the Lord Jesus Christ being in heaven is so that moment by moment, second by second, hour by hour, week by week, year by year, the whole purpose of Christ being in heaven is so that he may intercede on behalf of his people, the church. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the wonder of that great truth? The language that Paul uses here takes us back to Exodus 28. What about Exodus 28? It is the chapter where we read about Aaron, the high priest. 
what we are told that Aaron had a responsibility to intercede before God for the people. And he wore a special kind of tunic called an ephod. It was a type of long flowing tunic. And on that tunic were two shoulder pads. And on those shoulder pads were six stones on each side, six onyx stones on each side. And they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And he had a type of breast piece on his chest. It was blue and gold. But the significant thing about the breast piece was that there was 12 semi-precious stones on his chest. Also representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The point is this, that when the high priest would go into the tent of meeting to meet with God on behalf of God's people, he was symbolically carrying God's people where? On his shoulders. And upon his heart. That was the job of the great high priest. He was to represent the people before God in a particular way prescribed by God, carrying them, as it were, on his shoulders and on his heart. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ, as it does in the letter to the Hebrews, as being our high priest, the picture that we are to do, the picture that we are intended to have in our minds is this, that when Paul speaks of Christ interceding for us, he is using priestly language. He is hearkening back to the book of Exodus, chapter 28, to the priesthood, to the ironic priesthood. And he is saying Christ is the fulfillment of that. We are to do What? To picture Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, carrying his people on his strong shoulders, bearing his people upon his loving heart as he does what comes into the presence of the father. And we come with him, united to him, loved by him, cared for by him and carried by him. That is the picture. That lies behind the language of the Apostle Paul here in Romans. What more are we to understand about this language? What does it mean for Christ to be interceding for us? What does it mean? Brothers and sisters, let us consider first what it does not mean for Christ to be interceding for us. We are not to understand Christ's intercession to mean that Christ is on bended knee. Before his father, begging the father to bless his people. We are not to understand the intercession of Christ as being that. It's clearly not what it means. Our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, does not need to plead with the father on behalf of his people. Does he need to plead? Do you know why Jesus Christ does not need to plead with the Father? Do you know why? Because it was the Father himself who sent the Son to bless his people. It was the Father who sent the Son. The Son and the Father do not have separate agendas. The Father sends the Son. The Son redeems a particular people. The Spirit applies that redemption to those people. They are one. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is not trying to temper, to calm down the anger of the Father. He is not, as it were, holding the Father back from utterly destroying us. No. 
We are not Roman Catholics. Amen. Amen. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. How do we know? Because He sent the Son. The Father has blessed us, little ones. Heavenly Father has blessed us, little ones. How? How do you know, little ones, that the Father has blessed you? Because, little ones, for God so loved the world. A scripture you know, that He sent His Son. That He sent His Son. It is critical that we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has not come to obtain for the Father love for sinners. Brothers and sisters, that would make the gospel no gospel at all. That would destroy and debunk John 3.16. No, the Father loves sinners. Which is why he sent his son. And here you are today, a sinner saved by grace. Paul is not saying that we should think of the Lord pleading before the Father. We are also not to understand our Lord Jesus Christ as offering his saving blood before the Father on a continual or perpetual basis. He's not every single time, every single moment. Here's my blood again. Here's my blood again. Here's my blood again. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 727 that he offered up his his sacrifice once for all. One time for all time. Once for all. Not daily offering up himself. Not as as those who are going to Roman Catholic churches. I'm going to pick on them today. I don't care. As, as it happens every Sunday, representing Christ in a transubstantiary type of way. No, we don't represent him. He has been presented once for all. And that once for all was good for all time. All time. So then, what then are we to understand about this language that Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding as our great high priest? John Calvin and John Owen say this, and I agree, not because they said it, but because I believe this is what the Bible teaches. That when Christ speaks of interceding, or when the Bible speaks of Christ interceding for us, it means this, that his very presence, his very presence before the Father is, if you're taking notes, circle is, is our intercession. His very presence before the Father is our or His intercession. Our Lord's glorified humanity is the eternal pledge of the absolute perfection and effectiveness of His eternal work. Meaning this, He pleads before the Father by His very presence with the Father. He pleads before the Father by His very presence with the Father. His presence is His pleading. I just said the same thing three different ways. His presence is his pleading. The very fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is where he is at the right hand of God is the guarantee, the guarantee, the guarantee that what he died to accomplish, the father will surely and certainly bring to pass and give to him. Amen. 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 Listen to Calvin on this. We must not think of Christ as humbly supplicating the Father on bended knee and with outstretched hands. Christ, however, 
is justly said to intercede for us because he appears continually before the father in his death and resurrection. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is his intercession. His death and his resurrection and his ascension is his intercession. So then we must ask, what did the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he presently interceding for? What did he die to accomplish? Why are we know that his very presence at the right hand is the sign and signal that he has accomplished the work given to him by the father? So then what did he die and rise to accomplish? There were just three points this morning. Number one. He died and rose to accomplish our security and to protect his people. Or you could say it this way. He died and rose to secure the present protection of his people. The present protection of his people. John 17. Jesus, our great high priest, prayed in his high priestly prayer while he was still on earth. John 17, 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name or Father, protect them. In the name which you have given me, that we may be one, even as we we are one, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 15, keep them or protect them from the evil one. The Lord Jesus Christ, he died to secure this for us. His presence before the father, his presence before the father, as his father beholds uh, rich wounds yet visible above. He sees what the son has secured and won for his people. His people are secured and protected in Christ by his power. We, the people of Christ, are invulnerable. Do you know that? We, the people of Christ, are invulnerable. Nothing can hinder us. Nothing can hinder us from reaching our ultimate glory with Christ. Do you hear that? You who are sitting here today, wondering whether or not your salvation is secure, hear this. Nothing can hinder us from reaching our ultimate place of glory with Christ. Satan will attempt his best. Or may I say, Satan will attempt his hellish work toward you and toward I. But he cannot pluck a one of us out of the Father's hand. If he were able to pluck one of us out of the Father's hand, that would remove the Father from being the Father. If he were to remove any of us from God's hand, it would, be, it would be to remove God from God's very throne itself. And God is the ultimate invulnerable one. We are invulnerable. God is the ultimate invulnerable one. The intercession of Christ, it pleads. His presence pleads our protection. Now that does not mean that we will not from time to time struggle. And to find ourselves assailed from all sides. But it does mean 
that when those times arise, we will be kept by the power of God. We will be assailed. And yet we will be kept by God. From all sides even, brothers and sisters. And yet we will be kept by God. Have you not felt the sting and the pangs of Satan's fiery darts and arrows? Oh, I'm sure that we could all say amen. I have more than I'd like to count. The question I have for you is this. How are you still here? Because you're tough. Because you don't do easy. My wife and I say that a lot. We don't do easy. Because you don't do easy. No. Nothing in and of yourself or nothing of yourself. It is something in you. Christ Jesus, the hope of glory. It is Christ who is keeping you. There is one who is at the right hand of the Father. Whose very presence is the guarantee that nothing and no one can keep us from reaching the glory that God has ordained for us in Christ Jesus. The Lord has died to secure that. To secure that. So, dear one, you are secure. Why? Because Christ is where he is. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose to perfect us. To perfect us. Hebrews 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Jesus Christ die and rise again? Simply so that he might deliver us from death. Merely so that he might deliver us from death. Oh, that is one aspect. But not simply or merely the only aspect. No. But to perfect us for his father. To perfect for the father a people. To perfect for the father a people that will be to his praise and to his glory. To perfect for the Father a people. To beautify us. Listen to this. To remove from us not only sin's guilt and sin's dominion, but ultimately the very presence of sin in our lives. Not just its guilt, not just its dominion, but ultimately its very presence in our lives. Can you imagine your existence without sin? Do you know that there will be a day That you will stand sinless before God. You are now presently and already not yet before God sinless. And when you see him, you will be as he is. You will be glorified. Presence of sin gone. You can't even imagine that, can you? Lay in your bed and think about that tonight. Better yet, as you gather around the family with food, think about there will be a time when I will not hate you. I can't even imagine that. There will be a time where he will absolutely eradicate every stain, every wrinkle from our lives. His presence at the right hand of the Father is his intercession. And the assurance that our perfection will be accomplished. Meaning this, 
that his presence is the very guarantee that what was just said will take place. You will stand and say, what is this? I feel no temptation of sin. And it it will be because you are wrapped up in the glory of the Son. You may be like me. You may often observe your life. And you may often say like I do and what like Paul does. What a wretched man that I am. What a wretch. What a wretch that I am. What little progress in holiness I make. What little light emanates from my life in this world. And it is very true. But sometimes we can allow the reality, that reality of that sin to so overwhelm us that we lose sight of this. That one day, ultimately, that great truth of us being perfect before God will be real. It will be a reality. We will stand in the presence of God without any imperfections. Don't think physically. Don't think I'll finally be six feet tall, which is what I always pray. I'll finally be able to dunk, which is what I always know that in my soul, I will be made pure, that in my soul, I will finally be able to to live on the outside. What I know was on the inside without spot or wrinkle. That is our future. We will be together altogether spotless. And his presence at the right hand again is the guarantee of that great truth. It's the assurance of that. What a wonder. What a marvel that in spite of all my sins, all my failures, I will one day stand before him without blemish, spot or wrinkle. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? I pray that it is one of the great longings of your soul that you long for that day. And third and finally, Christ Jesus died and rose to join himself to us. To join us to himself or to join himself to us. When Paul speaks of Christ interceding for us, he is doing so understanding that Christ does this intercession in his glorified humanity. That there is glorified dust at the right hand of the father. He is like you and I. At this very moment, Christ in his humanity And in his deity, that great hypostatic union that that is a great mystery is standing before God, interceding for us. The Lord Jesus Christ has joined our frail flesh to himself. Is that not a great mystery? That he has joined our frail, weak flesh to himself. That he has humbled himself, making himself a servant like you and I. Our high priest in heaven who intercedes for us (coughs) is doing so (coughs) as the God man. Go to the book of Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews chapter four. The writers of the Hebrews makes much of this. And why? Why does the writers of the Hebrews make much of the God man 
being our great high priest. It is this. It is to underscore the sympathetic nature of the high priestly intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to tease that out for a little, a little bit. Verse 14 of, Roman, of Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, <clears throat> we have a, what's that word there? Great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest. Is that what your Bible says? Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. The, The adjective there, great high priest. It has a particular force. Because in Hebrew, high means great. Now, read your Bible again. If high means great, then what would we say that verse actually says? Since then, we have a great, great priest. Because high does mean great. Since then, we have a great, great priest. Interesting. So, the Hebrew is emphasizing the greatness of our high priest. I'm going to teach you a new word this morning, superlative. You ever heard of superlative? Superlative denotes this. It cannot get any higher. Superlative, meaning great, great high priest, or to to just say it in one way, our superlative High priest. He is the ultimate, the greatest, the preeminent one, the priest who surpasses all other priests. Since then, we have. He is ours. Perhaps the Christians who were being written to in the book of Hebrews were being told. We have a high priest. You don't have a high priest. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, oh, no, dear ones. No, dear brothers and sisters, we do have a great, great high priest. He is, in fact, a superlative high priest. There is no one greater than our high priest. He's the greatest of all high priests. It is amplified in verse 14 where he says, who has passed through what? The heavens. There is, during this time of year, being celebrated what is called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. It is called the Day of Atonement. What happened during the Day of of Atonement, that time of year, this time of year? Once a year, the high priest, listen, passed through the curtain from the sight of the people of God. Into where? Into the Holy of Holies. Which symbolized what? The very presence or near presence of God. Only to do what? Only to come out again and say, see y'all next year. Every year, 
he would go in and every year he would come out. But your great, great superlative high priest passes not through curtains, passes through heaven itself and enters not a temporary dwelling place of holiness, but the very throne of God itself into the holy of holies, the very presence of God and stands by himself on behalf of his people to intercede for us. He is not symbolically. He is the fulfillment of that great high priestly ministry. Listen, even Moses, as great as he was, was not great enough to enter the land of Canaan. And Jesus not only fulfills all of those things, but enters into heaven. Greater than every single priest who came before. And there shall never be another. He has entered heaven itself. Verse 14 of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. It is Christ. He is our perfect high priest. Verse 15. For we do not have this in close. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect. Now listen close. Has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Brothers and sisters. We have a great, great high priest. Who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Who has been tempted in all facets of life as you are. How is that possible? Think of your temptations. Are they before your mind? And Jesus can sympathize with you. How is that possible? Every, Every one of my temptations, every one of your temptations, tempted as you are, think about them. Jesus Christ faced them. He's able to sympathize. How? How can he, who is the very expression of perfection, sympathize with my weaknesses? Listen, did not the word become flesh? Did not the word become flesh? Look what he says in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be what? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. Why? In every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The writer to the Hebrews wants to show his tempted and tested brothers and sisters who were facing persecution, who were facing temptation, that they have an excellent, wonderful, unsurpassed, superlative high priest. And with the compassion of a pastor's heart, he lets them know he's been where you are. He stood where you stand. Hold fast. Hold fast to your confession of faith. He says in verse 14, don't turn back. 
He sympathizes with you. He knows your weaknesses. Hold fast. Opposition is great. Yes, the road is rocky, of course. But you must discover and hold fast to your superlative. Great high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hold on. Hold fast. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. And listen, not by omniscient observance, but by personal experience. Not because simply he knows all things, but because he has been where you are. He was made like us in every manner. So that he might be immersible. So that he might be faithful. He understands our frailty. He understands our weaknesses. He knows that we are dust because he himself is dust. As the book of Psalms says. His intercession, therefore, it's not cold. It's not calculated. It's one. It comes from one who is merciful. Who is faithful and true. He is able to sympathize with us. Because as Calvin said. He embraced the wretchedness of our flesh. The Lord became incarnate. If he never became incarnate. Listen. He may have pitied us. But he would have never been able to sympathize with us. He would have remained yet at a distance if he had never come in our frail flesh. But yet he comes so that he in every way can sympathize with his brethren and be merciful. What do you face today? What are your most difficult struggles today? And you are looking for someone. Is there anyone who understands? Brother, sister, look no further than your great high priest. Look no further. And what's the point? That he's able to sympathize with us? No, not the point. The point is not that Christ is able. Listen close. That he's able to sympathize with us. The, the point is this. The point that is this. It is impossible for him not to sympathize with us. The point is not he is able. The point is that it is impossible for him not to sympathize with us it is impossible for him not to sympathize with with his people because he is one with his people Amen. as the old hymn goes with every pang that rends the heart of, uh, the the heart the man of sorrows has a part he sympathizes with our weakness and to the sufferer he sends relief notice then the very end of paul's statement in the book of romans as we close go back there please romans eight thirty four. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. And as we close, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Amen. So we turn to the question that I asked you at the outset. How do you know that you were saved? Or to ask it another way, saying the same thing. Where is your assurance and comfort found? 
Where does your comfort lie this morning? Where do you find comfort and relief for your souls? I say, brothers and sisters, by authority of God's word, that our comfort, our relief lies altogether outside of you and me. The ultimate ground of the believer's assurance is not found within It is found without. In other words, the ultimate foundation of your assurance is not found inside of you. It is found outside of you. In Jesus Christ. Think about it. How do you know that you've been brought from death to life? What is your evidence? What is your assurance? Not you. Show enough, not you. That was my dad, right? I'm sorry about that. Your assurance of salvation is not that your language has changed. That you don't cuss anymore. Your assurance of salvation is not that your desires have changed. Your assurance of salvation is is not that you no longer use substance abuses. Not the evidence of your salvation. Not the assurance of your faith. Looking inward will never give you comfort and will never give you assurance. But look at me. Can't you tell? It is looking out of you. Looking unto Jesus. That enables you to look inside. It is first looking out that then causes you to look in. It is looking out to the grace of God. In Jesus Christ, that causes you to look in and say, look what he's done to me. We don't first look in, we look out. So when the question comes, how do you know? Because Jesus Christ has lived a life I could never live, has died a death that I deserve, has risen from the grave and is standing presently at the right hand of the Father, making intercession On my behalf, I stand because he has stood. It is to Christ first, looking unto Jesus, what? The author and finisher of our faith, or the author and perfecter of our faith. My hope is built on what? On nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name, Christ alone cornerstone amen Amen. brothers and sisters who shall condemn it is christ who died more than that who was raised and he was at the right hand of the father making intercession for his people to god alone be the glory let us stand